morning we come to the end of our two and a half year trek through the Gospel of Mark. And what a journey it has been. As we come to this last message in the series, I am somewhat nervous because it means that I no longer have job security. (laughs) I don't worry about getting fired when I'm in the middle of a long series, but when you get to the end, you never know. In all seriousness, this will probably be one of the most unusual sermons I've ever presented because a part of it is not going to be from a text of Scripture, but rather about a text of Scripture. What I mean is, I'm going to spend part of this message, the introduction, talking about the text itself before actually taking the time to explain the text. Turn with me to Mark chapter 16 and you will see what I mean. For many of you, if you use the New American Standard Bible or the ESV or the NIV, Mark chapter 16 ends in your translation with verse 8. Or it has verses 9 through 20 bracketed in some way to indicate that they are questionable verses. If you are using a King James Version or New King James Version, then you have verses 9 through 20, and you may or may not have some kind of footnote about whether or not they were a part of Mark's gospel when he originally wrote it. That is what makes this passage a very unique and unusual passage of Scripture. It is unusual because this particular section of Mark is not found in some of the 5,000-plus Greek manuscripts we have of the New Testament today. This is one, one of only two such extended passages found in the entire Bible, the other one being John seven fifty three through 8, 11, the famous story of Jesus and the woman taken in adultery. Because this section does not appear in most of the early manuscripts we have today, Many do not believe that Mark originally included this as a part of this gospel. Now, some of you might be saying, well, how did this get mixed up like this? To answer the question, track with me as we do a little bit of uh, technical work and talk about some technical issues of, of, of biblical and theological study. When the New Testament was originally written, as well as the Old Testament, It was written by men of God who were guided by the Holy Spirit of God. So the original manuscripts were inspired by God. That's the doctrine of verbal plenary inspiration. And the early Christians were sharp enough to recognize what was going on. It was evident that these books and these letters were not just like any ordinary writings of the day. It was obvious that they were unique pieces of literature, inspired scripture. So, the Christians copied those manuscripts over and over again. They wanted to get the word out. They wanted to get a copy of whatever they had, Ephesians or Galatians or Mark. They wanted to get a copy and send it to a friend or a family member or an acquaintance. So those manuscripts were copied over and over again, which is why we have over 5,000 manuscripts of the New Testament or portions of the New Testament. But as the original documents were copied, every now and then a copyist would insert a comment or a story in the text. This was not done 
to change the Word of God. Please hear that. This was not done to change the Word of God. It was done to help people understand, just like footnotes and study notes that are in study Bibles today. Many scholars feel that's why this section does not appear in every copy of Mark's gospel. Many conservative scholars believe that Mark actually ended his gospel account with verse 8. But because it is such an abrupt ending, a copyist added a longer ending by drawing bits and pieces from the other gospels and from the book of Acts. And it is a fact, as you look at this longer ending of Mark, that it basically is a, a repeat of what you find in the other gospels and the book of Acts all combined together. Now again, let me emphasize, this would have been done by someone to help his reader understand the rest of the story that Mark chose not to put at the end of his gospel. Now I'm sure you may be wondering how this kind of thing relates to the doctrine of inspiration and authority. So let me explain further. It is important to remember that the doctrine of verbal plenary inspiration applies to the original manuscripts, not to copies. And there are no original manuscripts in existence today. Let me state it another way. Every manuscript we have today of the Old and New Testament is a copy. We have no originals. And it's not surprising that God did not preserve them with the tendency toward idolatry. Who knows how many people would worship a copy of the, the book of Ephesians or the book of First Peter. So God, in his sovereignty, saw fit not to preserve any of the originals. Genesis, Exodus, Matthew, Mark, doesn't matter. We have no originals. However, that doesn't mean we need to be worried about whether or not the Bible is the authoritative word of God. You may find it interesting to know that the Bible Jesus used in his day, of course it was what we would call the Old Testament, but the Bible Jesus used in his day, the Bible Jesus studied, the Bible Jesus quoted from, was composed entirely of copies of manuscripts. In other words, the Bible that Jesus used did not contain any original manuscripts. Yet, Jesus had no hesitancy whatsoever quoting those words as the authoritative word of God, and neither should you. Maybe you're thinking, yeah, but, but how do we know if our manuscript, manuscript copies are accurate? The science behind that issue is known as textual criticism. Textual criticism is the field of study that compares all the manuscripts to verify the most accurate reading of every line of Scripture, yea, every word of Scripture. It's a very technical and accurate field of study, and the issue is really beyond the scope of our study this morning. In 45 minutes, we will never be able to explain or unlock all the details of conservative textual criticism. But let me mention an excellent resource for those who are interested in pursuing this topic in more detail. F.F. Bruce has written a tremendous work titled The New Testament Documents, Are They Reliable? In that book, he masterfully explains the fact that the New Testament documents 
all of these manuscripts that we have, and then, then the combined copy for what we have behind our English versions, that the New Testament documents are more reliable than all other works of ancient literature that are never even questioned by anyone. His book is definitely worth reading. F.F. Bruce, the New Testament documents, are they reliable? All that to say that there is no reason whatsoever for you to doubt the reliability and accuracy and authority of the Bible. However, the fact is there are some places where there is a question regarding the exact reading of the text and it just so happens that the ending of Mark is the biggest spot in all of Scripture. The earliest and most reliable manuscripts do not contain verses 9 through 20, which strongly suggests that those verses were added later by someone who was wanting to help the reader understand what happened after Mark's abrupt ending in verse 8. So, in summary... There are those who do not believe these verses were originally a part of Mark's gospel when he wrote it. And there are those who do believe that they were a part of Mark's gospel when he wrote it. If you take the latter view, believing that these were a part of Mark's gospel when he wrote it, at the very least, you should be very careful about basing any doctrine solely on these verses. For example, verse 18 speaks about taking up deadly serpents. As I'm sure you've heard through the years, there are some churches that use that verse to promote snake handling in their worship services, and it is a fact that people have died by doing so. I have documentation in my files of such occurrences. So again, let me emphasize that if you believe these verses were a part of Mark's gospel... At the very least, you should be careful about basing any doctrine solely on these verses. There is a statement in these verses about drinking poison. And there is a statement about casting out demons. And there is a statement about laying hands on the sick. And there is a statement about speaking in new languages. And there is a statement about believing and being baptized to be saved. All of those topics should be studied in light of all Scripture and not based solely on these verses. Now, some of you may be thinking, well, if there is all of this evidence that these verses were not a part of Mark's gospel when he wrote it, then why even take the time to go through them here at the end of the series on Mark? The answer is because it is possible that these verses were a part of Mark's gospel originally. Therefore, it is safest, which is the route most of our English translations have gone, it is safest to leave them in the text and consider, consider their meaning as a possible ending of Mark's original record. So with that in mind, please follow along as I read verses 9 through 20. And if you don't have them in your English Bible, then look on with a neighbor who may happen to have them in the translation or copy that he has or she has. Mark chapter 16, verse 9. Now, when Jesus rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had cast seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept. 
And when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they did not believe. After that, he appeared in another form to two of them as they walked and went into the country. And they went and told it to the rest, but they did not believe them either. Later he appeared to the eleven as they sat at the table, and he rebuked their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they did not believe those who had seen him after he had risen. And he said to them, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will follow those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons. They will speak with new languages. They will take up serpents. And if they drink anything deadly, it will by no means hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick and they will recover. So then, after the Lord had spoken to them, he was received up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them and confirming the word through the accompanying signs. Amen. This is often called the longer ending of Mark. The reason why it is called that is because As I said earlier, there is such strong evidence that Mark actually ended his gospel with verse 8. Verse 8 tells us that after the resurrection, the ladies came, they saw the angel. In verse 8, so they went out quickly and fled from the tomb, for they trembled and were amazed, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. At first reading, that may sound like a strange way to end your gospel record, But when you study this entire gospel, it makes sense that Mark ends by mentioning the fact that these ladies were afraid. One of Mark's themes throughout his gospel is the various kinds of fear that were prompted by the person and works and words of the Lord Jesus. Jesus, by virtue of who he was and what he did and what he said, produced various kinds of fear. For example, he produced a fear of judgment in the demons that would encounter him and beg him not to torment them. He produced a holy fear or awe in the hearts of people who saw or experienced his power. As strange as it may sound, it is the fact that Jesus produced various kinds of fear in those who encountered him. Thus, it would not be surprising for Mark to end his gospel here in verse 8 by leaving us to ponder the fear and amazement and wonder and awe and astonishment in the hearts of these women who came to the tomb on resurrection morning. So it is very possible that Mark ended his gospel with verse 8, but some later manuscripts have verses 9 through 20, which we will now consider as a close to our series through Mark's gospel. Verse 9 says, Now when he rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had cast seven demons. This appearance of Jesus is described in John chapter 20, verses 11 through 18. When Jesus first appeared to Mary, she didn't recognize him. This could have been because her eyes were blurred by her tears, and by her incessant crying, and it was early in the morning, or it could have been because the new resurrection body of Jesus was somewhat different than his former body. 
This seems to be hinted at down in verse 12. Whatever the reason, Mary didn't recognize Jesus at first, but after he spoke her name, she realized it was the Lord. When she did, she just had to tell others. And so verse 10 says, She went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept. This is another reminder to us that the followers of Jesus did not expect a resurrection. The reason why it's important to emphasize that point, and I've done so for three weeks now, the reason why it's important to emphasize this point is because some skeptics try to dismiss the resurrection by saying that the followers of Jesus were so eager to believe in the resurrection that they invented the story. That assertion is ridiculous. They weren't eager to believe in the resurrection. They didn't even think about a resurrection because they didn't even understand he was going to die when he told them repeatedly. So it is foolish to suggest that they were eager to invent the story of the resurrection. The next verse tells us that they didn't even believe it when it happened. Verse 11 says, And when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they did not believe. It took the followers of Jesus some time to accept the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. John may have been an exception to that, but that was the case with just about all the other believers. They could not process or wrap their minds around the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. So Mark is summarizing those experiences here in just a few verses But some of the accounts are told in much greater detail in the other Gospels. For example, most Christians know the story of Jesus walking with the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. They walked and talked with Jesus for probably hours and didn't recognize him until he took bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they knew him. That comes right out of Luke 24, and Mark summarizes the story in the next verse. Verse 12, After that, he appeared in another form to two of them as they walked and went into the country. This verse says he appeared in another form. We don't know exactly what that means, but Luke does tell us that once those two knew him, he vanished from their sight. That's a reminder to us that the resurrection body of Jesus, although similar to his former body, was glorified and different in significant ways. And we read in verse 13, And they went and told it to the rest, but they did not believe them either. According to Luke's account, the rest who are spoken of here in this verse is a reference to the 11 disciples in Jerusalem. The two followers of Jesus who walked with him on the road to Emmaus went back to Jerusalem to tell the 11 disciples that they had seen the resurrected Lord, but the 11 didn't believe them. While they were all there, Jesus appeared to them. Verse 14, later he appeared to the 11 as they sat at the table and he rebuked their unbelief and hardness of heart because they did not believe those who had seen him after he had been risen. Now what happened on this occasion? According to Luke's account, Jesus took a piece of broiled fish and ate it in their presence 
to prove that it was actually him in flesh and bone, not a spirit or a ghost. They thought they were seeing a spirit of some kind. Jesus ate to show them that this was no spirit. This was him in his resurrected body. So Jesus straightened them out. He rebuked their unbelief, and then he commissioned them in verse 15. And he said to them, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. It's interesting to compare the commission of Jesus that is recorded in each of the four gospel accounts because they are different in all four gospels. That probably means that Jesus gave several commissions to his disciples before his ascension. In Matthew 28, 19, Jesus told his disciples to go and make disciples. Here in verse 15, he told them to preach the gospel to every creature. At the end of Luke's gospel, he told them to proclaim repentance and forgiveness of sins. In John's gospel, he said, as the Father has sent me, I also send you. Now, it's possible that he said all those things at the same time, and the gospel writer simply chose to record one part of his commission in their record. Or, as I said, it is also possible that Jesus gave several commissions to his disciples at various times before his ascension. Verse 16 says, He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned or damned. As you probably know, there are those who try to use this verse to say that you have to be baptized to be saved. There are several problems with that assertion. Number one, we don't know with certainty that this was even in Mark's gospel when he wrote it, as discussed earlier in the message. Number two, the teaching that baptism saves is contrary to the rest of the New Testament. And then number three, the second half of this verse makes it clear that the lost are damned for their unbelief not for not being baptized. However, this does show the emphasis and importance of baptism in the New Testament era. It is simply assumed by the writers of the New Testament that a genuine Christian will get baptized. And that is what is behind this statement. Verse 17 tells us, as Mark continues to record this commission, and these signs (coughs) will follow those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons. They will speak with new languages. The key word in this verse is the word signs. When you study the topic of spiritual gifts in the New Testament, it becomes clear that they can be divided into three categories. There are speaking gifts, there are serving gifts, and there are sign gifts. Those three categories. The sign gifts were specifically connected to the apostles and the apostolic era. 2 Corinthians 12.12 makes this clear when when Paul talks about the signs of an apostle. He defends his apostleship by saying the signs of an apostle were accomplished among you. In other words, how can you doubt that I'm an apostle? I did signs that only an apostle can do. So that is a clear statement of the sign gifts being connected to the apostles and apostolic era. Now remember, a sign is not an end in itself. 
A sign always points to something greater. The sign gifts of the New Testament era were intended for the purpose of pointing people to God's truth. They were to get people's attention so they would hear the Word of God. The sign gifts that are mentioned in the New Testament are miracles, which would include casting out demons, healing, languages, and the interpretation of languages. Acts 5.12 says, Through the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were done among the people. Hebrews 2 also indicates that the signs were connected with the apostles and the apostolic era. And we know from Ephesians 2 that the apostles were foundational to the church. Ephesians 2.20 specifically states that. You know as well as I do, whenever you build a building, you put the foundation on the first level. That's obvious. So if, according to Ephesians 2.20, the apostles were part of the foundation, then they aren't a part of the 21st century. or the 20, We're in the 21st story of the building right now. We're in the 21st story of the church. But the apostles were part of the foundation, the very beginning. The apostles have passed off the scene And when they did, the sign gifts that were connected with them passed off the scene. Again, the sign gifts that passed off the scene are miracles, healing, languages, the interpretation of languages. Now please hear this. Whenever this type of statement is made, people leave here saying, Brian said God no longer does miracles. That's not what I said. Don't put words in my mouth. God no longer heals people in response to prayer. That's not what we're talking about. God performing miracles, God healing people is an altogether different issue than a man having the ability to walk into the hospital and empty it because he has the gift of healing. Or the ability to do a miracle uh, at at, at a whim. It's a totally different topic. Suffice it to say that the first century, in the first century, these sign gifts were operative And that is what verse 17 is talking about. It mentions casting out demons and speaking with new tongues or languages. And let me emphasize that last point. It is patently obvious from Acts chapter 2 that the gift of tongues was the gift of languages. It was a known language. It was unknown to the speaker, but it was a known language. In 1 Corinthians 12.10, Paul refers to many kinds of languages, and the Greek word that is used there means varieties of languages. Listen, there aren't varieties of gibberish. Gibberish is gibberish, but the gift of languages involve different kinds of known languages. And when Paul refers to the interpretation of languages in 1 Corinthians, he uses a word that carries the idea of translation translating a language. You see, the gift of languages was just that. It was languages. And the same Greek word that is used in Acts 2 for the gift of tongues is used throughout 1 Corinthians. So let me say this as clearly as I can. The gift of tongues in the Bible was the gift of languages. Let me say that again. The gift of tongues in the Bible was the gift of languages. Say that with me. The gift of tongues in the Bible was the gift of languages. 
Some will object by referring to Paul's statement in 1 Corinthians 13.1 about the tongues of men and of angels. But the problem with that kind of interpretation is that verses 1 through 3 of 1 Corinthians 13 are all hypothetical. So I will say it one more time. The gift of tongues in the Bible was the gift of languages. That was an operative sign gift in the New Testament era. And so were the things mentioned in the next verse. Verse 18 says, They will take up serpents, and if they drink anything deadly, it will by no means hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick, and they will recover. You may remember that there was an occasion in the book of Acts when Paul was bitten by a poisonous snake, and he simply shook it off his hand and into the fire. However, that doesn't mean that you can presume upon God by claiming that for yourself today. In the Wednesday, January 18th, 1995 edition of the Bozeman Daily Chronicle, there was an article that came from Enigma, Georgia. Here's what it said, and I quote, A man died after being bitten by a rattlesnake, which he had taken to church because the Bible says believers shall take up serpents. Dewey Bruce Hale, age 40, was bitten during Sunday services at New River Free Holiness Church and died at home late that night, the sheriff's office said. The death was ruled accidental. The sheriff's department was not called by family or the church, said Sheriff Jerry Brogdon. Nothing was reported. If he had gone to the hospital it would have all been different. Witnesses said Hale took the rattlesnake to church in a box and was bitten on the hand when he took it out. Martha Hale, a cousin of the victim, said church members take the Bible literally, particularly a passage in Mark, saying that one sign of those who believe in Jesus is that they shall take up serpents. Many have been bitten and were healed at the church, she said. They feel he didn't die because of the snake, but that he died because it was his time to go, end quote. I disagree. I believe he died because he failed to take into account that some of the statements or events in the Bible are not intended to be normative because they are transitional. Now, it's commendable to take the Bible literally, but it also has to be interpreted accurately. In Acts 28, Paul was bitten by a snake, but he simply shook the snake off his hand into the fire and he went about his business. He didn't get any medical attention because the promise of Jesus about being immune to snake bites applied to him during the transitional time of the book of Acts as an apostle. But if you get bit by a poisonous snake, you better get some medical attention or you'll probably end up like Mr. Hale. God doesn't usually make up for that kind of ignorance and foolishness. We have a responsibility to rightly divide the word of truth according to 2 Timothy 2.15. A failure to do so can be disastrous, even deadly, as it was for Mr. Hale. We must rightly divide the word of truth. These miraculous signs were a part of the early stages of the church, but even the evidence in the New Testament indicates that God did not intend for these things to be ongoing and normative. Now, I've presented that evidence in much detail in the past, 
And you can listen to those messages if you want more evidence, but we don't have the time this morning. It's beyond this, the point of, of working our way through here the end of Mark. Notice now that Mark closes his gospel with a statement about the ascension of Jesus. Verse 19. So then, after the Lord had spoken to them, he was received up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. The right hand of God is the place of honor. It's the place of authority. Acts 1.9 describes the ascension this way. Now when he had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. That cloud was probably the Shekinah glory of God. The Shekinah cloud of glory. The cloud ushered Jesus back to the glory he had with the Father before the world began. He took his place at the Father's right hand. He was exalted once again. You know, this is, a, this is a subject that we don't give near enough thought and attention to, unfortunately. Listen to what one man has written on it. It may surprise you. He says, and I quote, We are oddly choosy as Christians. Most of us would count it odd not to celebrate Christmas Day in some form or other, even though we know that the day itself is somewhat arbitrarily fixed and that by an ecclesiastical authority which by no means all of us would recognize. Likewise, we do not let Good Friday and Easter Day pass unnoticed. But who celebrates Ascension Day? Did I hear you ask, is there an Ascension Day? The Bible makes much of the Ascension of our Lord Jesus. Jesus foretold it in Luke 22, John 7, John 8, John 14, and John 16. The event is described in Luke 24 and Acts 1. It is referred to in Hebrews 1, Hebrews 9, Hebrews 10, Luke 24, Acts 5, Acts 7, Ephesians 4, Colossians 3, and 1 Peter 3. It is associated with the sending of the Holy Spirit in John 7, John 16, and Acts 2. It is associated with the giving of gifts to the church in Ephesians 4. It is associated with the certainty of our heavenly home in John 14. It is associated with Christ as our forerunner in Hebrews 6 and his intercession for us in Romans 8 and Hebrews 9. It is associated with his role as priest-king, hearer of prayer, and bestower of grace in Hebrews chapter 4. End quote. The point is, the Bible places a great emphasis on this event, and we don't always. Hebrews 1.3 says of Jesus, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. When Jesus finished the Father's work, God exalted him at his right hand. But that doesn't mean that the Lord was done with his work. There is the finished work of Christ. That's related to redemption. And there is the unfinished work of Christ. And that's related to ministry. And that comes out in the last verse, verse 20. It says, They went out and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them and confirming the word through the accompanying signs. Amen. Notice that last phrase. The Lord working with them and confirming the word through the accompanying signs. 
That's a significant reminder that the purpose of the first century sign gifts was to confirm the word. It was to confirm the word that the apostles were preaching and teaching. The word is the important thing. But as you well know, in large sections of Christianity, the word isn't the important thing. Frankly, it's not. You don't even need to take your Bible to church in a lot of Christian churches because the word isn't the important thing. The important thing is the supposed miracles and the tongues and the healings. That's become the important thing, which is tragic. The Word of God is what is most significant. And even, catch this, even when the sign gifts were in operation, their purpose was to confirm the Word. It was to point to the Word. So, beloved, don't get all caught up in or sidetracked by those who exalt the sign gifts. It just dominates Christianity today. Don't get caught up in that. Stick to the Word. Study the Word and learn the Word and live the Word and share the Word just as the disciples did when Jesus commissioned them and ascended to the right hand of God. You see, there's a sense in which this is our commission also. We need to share the Word because Romans 10.14 says, And how shall they believe in Him of whom they have not heard? It's our job to share the Word and to make sure that our lives back up what we say from the Word. Regardless of whether you ever go to the mission field or not, you are called to take the message of the gospel with you throughout life into every setting and every venue of life. Now, beloved, if you don't get anything out of this message, please get that point. Let's end how we should end the Gospel of Mark, being reminded that we have been commissioned to represent Christ. That is our commission in life. If you are a Christian, you are a personal representative of Jesus Christ. Your life should be a testimony of the difference that he makes in a person's life. For example, if you are married, then the way you behave as a husband or a wife should reflect your devotion to Christ. If you are an employer, then the way you run your business should be a testimony of God's grace. If you are an employee, the way you work should be a testimony of God's grace. Our devotion to the Lord should impact and influence every facet of our lives because we are called to represent Christ everywhere in business, in school, in neighborhood, in sports, in politics, in every facet of life, we are called to represent Christ. That's a great reminder for us as we end Mark's gospel, the reminder that we, you and I, are commissioned to represent Jesus Christ. So how are you doing? That's the question we face as we end Mark's gospel. You see, it's not so important that we get through Mark. What is important is, has Mark gotten through us? Not did we get through Mark. Did Mark get through to us? That's the issue. Let's bow together as we close. As you bow your head and close your eyes and just reflect for a few moments not only on this 
text today, but just on the, the gospel of Mark as a whole, the gospel that presents Jesus as the tireless servant, the one who did the will of the Father and did it immediately. You may remember how often Mark uses that word throughout his gospel. More, way more than any other gospel writer, he uses euthus, immediately, immediately, immediately. Jesus immediately did the will of God. He immediately did what God the Father wanted him to do. Jesus was the tireless servant. Always doing the will of the Father. Always representing the Father properly. And now that we've come to the end of Mark's gospel, there's a sense in which now we are reminded that we have been commissioned with that same role. We have been commissioned to represent the Father We have been commissioned to represent the Lord Jesus. We have been sent by Him into the highways and byways of life, in all the different venues, in all the different circles of life. And we're there to be salt and light, to represent the Lord Jesus Christ. Child of God, is that first and foremost on your mind? As you live your life, is it first and foremost in your heart and on your mind? to represent Jesus Christ. Now, if you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ, you have no relationship with him, he said right here in this gospel, in fact, the key verse of this gospel is that the Son of Man has come not to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom. Have you responded to the gospel offer that Jesus purchased your redemption And you need to respond by faith. If you have not, then there's no better day than today. Right now, this very moment, right where you are seated in the quietness of your heart, to call out to Jesus Christ. As Romans 10 says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So call on him today and be saved. Father, thank you for the privilege that has been ours over these many months to work our way through this inspired account of the life, the ministry, the service, the death, the resurrection, the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's nothing better in life than to muse upon the Lord Jesus Christ, than to contemplate him, than to study him, than to meditate on him, than to learn from him and hear from him and watch him. Thank you for this privilege that has been ours. May it, may it have been life-transforming for us. And especially as we come to the end now, may we not lose sight of the fact that we have been commissioned to represent him in life. May that be first and foremost in our thoughts and in our minds. And in closing, we pray for anyone hearing these words this very moment anyone who does not know your son, Jesus Christ, may your Holy Spirit draw that man or woman to turn to Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen.